I want you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, which if you've got one of our Bibles, it's page 962. We've been walking through the book of Luke for over a year now, and last week, Jesus sends out 72 of his disciples on mission. And he says to them, before he sends them out, he says, look, you need to pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up more laborers for the harvest. And that was Luke 10, verse 2. And so if you were here last week, uh, how many of you set your alarm at 10.02 every day? And I saw some of you on Facebook. Yeah, many of you did. Uh, This morning we got together at 10.02 and we prayed. And so I would encourage you, if you weren't here last week, pull out your phone, set an alarm, 10.02. As a church, we are right now praying every single day that God would raise up more laborers for the harvest. I would encourage you to do that. And so Jesus sends out his disciples. He says, pray for more laborers. He also tells them that, look, I am sending you out like sheep among the wolves. But you know what? I don't want you to take anything with you. Okay, I want you to rely fully on God on this mission trip. I want you to have some urgency about you. Go quickly. Don't even talk to anybody in the street as you pass by them. I want you to be dependent on other believers for their hospitality to to help you through this time. And you know what? You need to expect rejection. Expect rejection. That's what he says. You're going to be like sheep among wolves. And so they go out, and I think to their surprise, they experience success. In fact, they come back with great joy, and they summarize their experience to Jesus, saying, look, even the demons listen to us in your name. But Jesus humbles them and says, look, don't don't rejoice in that, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, don't rejoice in your success, rejoice in your salvation, because your success is only going to be seasonal. The promise of salvation that I give you, that's eternal. So tether your joy onto something that's going to last for eternity, that's not going to be a roller coaster. And so we talked about all of that last week, and we encourage you to to do things that are going to foster your joy in your salvation, right? And so we move from that, and with that as our backdrop, we pick up in verse 21, chapter 10, verse 21. In that same hour, he, talking about Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we walk through this passage, we recognize that it is only because of your sovereign grace that our eyes can see your salvation. 
And I pray that in this moment, you would continue to open up our eyes to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. And it would cause us to rejoice, that it would bubble up inside of us and we wouldn't even be able to contain the joy that you are giving us because of the salvation that you offer. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's walk through this passage together. At the very beginning of verse 21, in, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. So that, that phrase, in that same hour, was slang back then for saying, immediately after what just happened. Okay? And so Luke wants you to see that there's a direct connection with the rejoicing that Jesus is doing and what just happened. And so what just happened? He just told the disciples, don't rejoice in your success, but rejoice in your salvation. And so there's a connection because what's about to happen is that Jesus is rejoicing in their salvation also. And so he wants you to see that connection. And that word rejoice here in verse 21 is actually a little bit, it's a different Greek word than what we saw in the previous verses just before this. And it's a little bit difficult to translate. In fact, some of your Bibles may translate it different than what I read. It might say that Jesus rejoiced greatly or that Jesus, full of joy. The word rejoice in verse 21 literally means this. It means to exalt, to experience a state of great joy and gladness, often involving verbal expression and appropriate body movement. And so this is the type of joy that you, see, you might see at a, a championship game where the, the, the fans and their team just won the championship and they're just going bananas, right? Or, or maybe it's when you might see this joy if uh, you're a parent and your child and you find out that they just received like a full ride scholarship to, to college, okay? I mean, I would go bananas if that happened, right? Um, it, it's, it's, this, uh, amaz- it's, a, it's a joy that is so intense that it bu- bubbles up into a physical response that you're singing, that you're, you're praising him, that you're dancing, you're leaping. The only other time that that word is used in the Gospel of Luke is back when Mary was singing about being pregnant with Jesus. Uh, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And so my point here is that Jesus is not just having a warm, fuzzy feeling. All right? It's not that kind of... It's an exuberant joy. It's a, it's a Holy Spirit-inspired elation. And so the question I want to ask is, okay, why? What's fueling this ecstatic joy? I look back at verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Literally, for such was your good pleasure. Just remember that phrase for later. We'll come back to that. Okay, so what are these things that he's hiding from some and revealing to others? What, what are these things? Well, verse 22 helps to clarify. Look at verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except for the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
And so Jesus, is a, he's elated over this, over salvation, over God's sovereign grace in salvation, over the sovereign grace of his Father that he has hidden salvation from the wise and the understanding, in other words, the prideful, and he's revealed it to those who are like little children, the uneducated, the humble, the dependent, the needy. Now, before we go on, let me say this. If you believe in the Bible, and you believe that it is God's word, you, you've got to come to a point that you become comfortable with paradox. Uh, a paradox is simply something that seems like a logical contradiction. At least in our finite minds, it seems like a logical contradiction. But in God's infinite mind, it makes total sense. For example, the Trinity. God is three in one. Okay, the math doesn't, doesn't make sense in our mind. But in God's mind, it makes complete sense. Or uh, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. Okay, that's a paradox. Well, another paradox that we see in the Bible is this, that the Bible teaches that God is completely sovereign, that he is in control of every atom in the universe. But it also teaches that humans make meaningful choices. And at first glance, those two things don't seem like they could coexist and both be true. But in the Bible, we see that they're both very much affirmed. And believers have been wrestling with this paradox for thousands of years. And we debate over the fine or the, the, the details about it all the time. But I would encourage all of us, and this is me included, that we need to have a balanced approach to this. Uh, there, there's a, a tightrope that we kind of have to, to walk on. Because if someone leans too heavily on the sovereignty of God and they ignore the Bible's teaching on man's responsibility and that we make meaningful choices, what happens is that person becomes very apathetic. And like, why evangelize? I mean, if God's already chosen everybody before the foundations of the earth, why, why go and evangelize? Why, why pray? I mean, if God's already got everything planned, why pray? Why, why even be obedient? If God's going to choose who's in and who's out anyhow, and, and I have nothing to do, why, why even be obedient? Uh, some people call those... People, the frozen chosen, okay? They're, uh, uh, they're just apathetic. Now, on the other hand, those, those who lean too heavily on man's responsibility and to neglect the Bible's teaching about the sovereignty of God, they tend to be filled with either excessive guilt or excessive pride based on how they feel they're being obedient to God. If they're experiencing just a, a season where they're struggling with sin and they just can't get past something, they're going to live in their guilt. And they just can't get past that. Or if they're experiencing a season of success and they're, they're, they're victorious and being obedient, they're going to feel pride rise up in their, their heart and, and they'll become arrogant. Uh, the Pharisees are a good example of this. This is why the Bible affirms both. And in fact, the Apostle Paul was so comfortable with this paradox that he affirms both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility almost in the same breath. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, now 
So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, listen to this. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Man's responsibility. For, connection word, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's that phrase again. And so right there, you see both man's responsibility and you see God's sovereignty in the same breath. God's sovereignty does not excuse us of responsibility. And our ability to make meaningful choices does not limit God's sovereignty. In fact, we've seen this in the last two chapters in Luke. You think about chapter 9 of Luke. What's happening there? Jesus is telling his disciples, look, if you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to give up everything. Okay, you, you make meaningful decisions to follow me. He's saying that all through chapter 9. But then we come to chapter 10, and what's his emphasis here? It's very much on God's sovereignty. Here in chapter 10, we've seen in verse 2, he encourages the disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up more labors for the harvest. What's he's em- what is he emphasizing there? That God is the Lord of the harvest, that it's his harvest. And that he is sovereign over the harvest. That he is going to be the one that raises up more laborers for the harvest. And then he sends out the disciples with absolutely nothing. Why? Because he wants them to trust in the sovereignty of God. And then when they come back and they're rejoicing over their own success, he says, he humbles them and he says, look, don't rejoice over that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then Jesus goes on to rejoice that God's sovereign grace chooses, and in his sovereign grace, he chooses to reveal salvation to the little children rather than to the wise and the understanding. So, here's the, here's the deal for us today. As followers of Jesus, we ought to rejoice in what Jesus rejoices in, right? There is great joy to be found in God's sovereign grace. And so, what does that mean? What does that mean? If you're a believer, what does it, God's sovereign grace mean for you? Number one, if you're taking notes, it means this, that you should rejoice because God chose you before you ever chose him. God chose you before he ever, before you ever chose him. Verse 22 again, no one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. And so for us to know who Jesus is and who the Father is, it has to be revealed to us. This was Paul's heart as he stated or as he started his letter to the Ephesians. He says this in verse 3, blessed, this is chapter 1, verse 3 of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, literally according to his good pleasure, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, Before the world existed, God looked at you and said, you're mine. I love you. He chose you, not because anything you've done, not 
there's nothing special in you. It was just simply his good pleasure. Now, I want you to understand that this was not some kind of divine lottery that he was arbitrarily picking some to be saved. And while the Bible doesn't reveal, God doesn't reveal to us all of God's reasonings, why he chooses who he chooses, we know that from this passage and others that it was his pleasure to do so. Uh, If you ever walked into Chick-fil-A, and notice that when you say thank you to them, they never reply back with, you're welcome. What do they say instead? They say, my pleasure, right? And you know that we notice that, don't we? It makes, it makes a big difference. In fact, ye- uh, yesterday I asked Jenny, who works at Chick-fil-A, why is that? Why do they say my pleasure instead of you're welcome? And this is what she replied to me. She said, look, the mission statement of Chick-fil-A is this, to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us to have a positive influence on all who come into contact with Chick-fil-A. We say my pleasure because Chick-fil-A wants their customers to know that it is our pleasure to serve them. It's about serving the community instead of making a buck. And so the words, you're welcome, they're just too indifferent. In fact, the founder of Chick-fil-A came up with that idea after he had visited a very high-class hotel. And that's how they would treat their, uh, their customers. And he wanted those that came into his restaurants to feel like that, 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 that they're special, that they're, they're like kings, royalty. Uh, and you see the difference, don't you? I mean, you walk into Chick-fil-A, there's a big difference in the atmosphere than if you walk into like McDonald's. Just The whole culture is different because of that little change that the, the founder made. There's an attitude change there. And so my point is this. When you praise God, and we sing about being thankful to God and Jesus for our salvation, he doesn't look at you and say, you're welcome. He doesn't look at you and say, oh, no big deal. He looks at you and he says, it was my pleasure to save you. I loved you before you ever loved me. And and Jesus is rejoicing in that, in this passage. He's rejoicing that, uh, that the salvation has come to his disciples. And so what does God's sovereign grace mean for you, believer? One, rejoice that he chose you before you ever chose him. Number two, we should rejoice in God's sovereign grace because he chooses the humble over the prideful. Verse 21 again, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, your good pleasure. Uh, the Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And so God is completely free to choose whomever he wills, and in his freedom, he flips 
upside down all the worldly expectations of who would be chosen, who, of who would be special. The wise are passed over in their pride for the little children. The, the helpless, the most unlikely, are surprised by God's sovereign grace. Why? He explains it in this passage, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And so the way that he chooses is designed to remove boasting in ourselves. We've done nothing. We've done absolutely nothing to qualify to be chosen. I know growing up, maybe you experienced this in elementary school. uh, Did you ever go out on recess and play basketball or football and they would pick teams, right? They're like the best two people would be captains. And I remember when I, when I was young, I grew a little bit too fast and my, my muscles didn't quite catch up with my growth and I would trip over my own feet. And so often when we, they picked captains for teams and I, I always wanted to play with the bigger kids, right? And often I would get picked last or, or in that last group. But I remember my buddy who was one of the best athletes in the school, one day uh, he looked at me and he chose me first. And I think it was a little bit out of pity. (laughs) But that's what he did. And I remember in that moment feeling like, man, I am on top of the world. Now, with God, he doesn't choose because of pity. He chooses because of his good pleasure. But we should rejoice in the fact that you don't need to prove yourself to God. No matter what you've gone through, no matter what you've done in your life, your salvation is dependent on God and His good pleasure. It's not dependent on you. We should rejoice in that. And thirdly, we should rejoice in God's sovereign grace because He has opened our blind spiritual eyes. And verse 23, he turns to the disciples, and privately he, he says to them, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and did not hear what you hear. Now, I think it's significant. In, in Matthew's version of this passage, in his gospel, he says something very, very similar. In fact, we read it in our reading today. Um. He says something very similar to this, but the location that Matthew puts it is right after Jesus has just explained the purpose of the parables, why he speaks in parables. And he's just explained, if you remember the purpose of the parables, we've walked through that passage in Luke earlier this past year. The reason is is this. I'm going to read this straight from Matthew 13, 13. This is why I speak to them in parables, Jesus says, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And so what he's saying there is that, look, I speak in parables. It's kind of like speaking in code so that, yes, they would see and hear with their physical eyes, but they would not be able to hear and perceive with their spiritual eyes and ears. And then he quotes Isaiah to back up his point. And Jesus goes on in Matthew to to say, just like he said in Luke, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And he's talking about their spiritual eyes and their spiritual ears. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see or hear what you hear. My my point is that I believe that 
that passage in Matthew helps us understand what's going on in Luke chapter 10. That when Jesus says to his disciples, blessed are the eyes that see what you see, he's not simply talking about their physical eyes, he's talking about their spiritual eyes. And how are they able to see with their spiritual eyes? It's God revealing it to them. And his sovereign grace, because of his good pleasure, he opens up their eyes. Before you can come to Jesus, God has to heal your spiritual blindness. We see this throughout Scripture. In fact, back in Luke chapter 4, Jesus began his ministry by reading a passage from Isaiah that served as a pronouncement of why he had come. And he, he says, in, or from Isaiah, he says, uh, He has sent me, talking about his father, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover of sight to the blind. And so that's how Jesus started his ministry, by proclaiming that, look, this is why I have come. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, they can't discern the spiritual things apart from God's help. He makes it even more clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, and even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in their case, the God of this world, he's talking about Satan there, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as the servant of Jesus Christ. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying there that your, spiritually, your spiritual eyes are blind and on your own you cannot open them up to be able to perceive the beauty and the glory of Christ. So understand, even an, even an unbeliever can understand the concept of Jesus being Savior. But unless their spiritual eyes are open, they will never fall in love with Jesus. They will never delight and the beauty, and the glory of Jesus. The only solution to your spiritual blindness is God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He, he shows your heart the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I've used this illustration before, but salvation is kind of like you've lived your whole life in a cave, in darkness, and all you know is the darkness of that cave and the, 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 the moist walls and the, the moist air, the, the, the musty smell, and that's all you really know. But then one day in God's sovereign grace, he opens up a hole at the top of the cave and he lowers down a ladder that maybe looks a little bit like a cross and and you recognize that it cost him something to open up that hole and send down that ladder. It wasn't just free for him to do that. And so you climb up that ladder and you poke your head out that hole and you climb out of that hole. And for the first time, you see the beauty and the glory of the world. And you, you feel the, the warmth of the, the sun on your face. And you feel the light breeze and you can smell the flowers and you, you step out onto the grass with your, with your bare feet and you feel the softness and you turn around and there's a whole group of people 
welcoming you into their, their family. And then all of a sudden you see Jesus there, and he's like jumping up and down and celebrating and rejoicing because your eyes have finally been opened to see the beauty and the glory of his salvation. As believers, we should rejoice that God has done a miracle to open up the eyes of our hearts to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. And so if you are a believer today, this passage should elicit at least three responses. There's probably more, but there's three that I want to highlight. First of all, it should elicit a new gratitude as we dwell on the fact that God chose us, not because we were good or because we were smart or because there's anything special about us, but it was simply His good pleasure to do that. That should fill us with thankfulness and wonder as we think about, why me? I mean, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve eternal life. I don't deserve your grace. It should elicit gratitude. Secondly, it should cause in us, it should cause humility to rise up in us as we dwell on our total inability to merit salvation on our own. As we, as we think of where we came from, the cave, the, the depth of our own depravity, our lostness, our spiritual blindness, there, if, if you think about those things, there's no room for pride in our lives. As Paul said, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It should elicit humility. And and thirdly, it should elicit a dependence, a very deep dependence on God. As we dwell on God's sovereign grace, it should spur us on to live and to serve in the ongoing supply of that same empowering grace. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is not only graciously sovereign over your salvation he is graciously sovereign over your sanctification and the process of you becoming more like christ and in his sovereign grace and in his wisdom he has chosen not to sanctify us in a day which i wish he would that would be so awesome but he and his wisdom has chosen to make salvation or make sanctification last our whole lifetime, so that every single day we would depend more and more on Him. And so He gets the glory every single day because of that. And so my prayer for us in the room that are believers is that we would grow in gratitude and humility and dependence. And let me say this, if you are not a believer, if you're here just kind of checking things out and and you've heard about Jesus, and you've gone to church before, but you've never, you've never followed him as, as Lord or, or trusted him as your Savior. I, I pray that this would also elicit a response in your heart. Because listen to me, you are not here on accident. God in his sovereign grace has brought you here. And in his sovereign grace, he wants you to hear the gospel so that your, the eyes of your heart might be opened so that you would see and know the beauty and the glory of Christ. And the gospel is simply this, if, you, if you're curious. 
And it's that Jesus loves you so much that he was willing to die on the cross for your sins, to pay the penalty that you deserve. And then on the third day, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, declaring victory over sin and over death. And he says that, look, if you turn from your sins, in other words, if you repent and you trust in him for salvation and what he did on the cross for you, he promises to forgive your sins and he promises eternal life, that you can spend eternity with him in heaven. And if that's you, I mean, there is nothing more glorious to rejoice in. I mean, that's way bigger than your team winning the championship. And if that's you, we want to celebrate with you. I mean, I want to know because I want to, I want to like Jesus, I want to celebrate like he's rejoicing in this passage. And so I would encourage you, if God has been opening up your eyes and he's been moving in your heart and you have come to a place where you've trusted in Christ, I'm going to be in the back here in a minute. Please come tell me. We want to celebrate with you that, what God's doing in your heart. I'll be in the back if there's anything else that you need prayer for. I would love to pray with you. Uh, this is also a time that we're going to move into communion, which is something we do every single week. If you're a visitor with us and you're a believer, we'd encourage you to join us in this celebration. And communion, if you don't know, it's something that Jesus gave us as a reminder of what he's done for us on the cross. It's a, it's a reminder that he shed his blood for us to pay the penalty that we deserve. And so the bread represents his body. You'll come up. There's two stations up here. There's one in the back. You'll dip the bread into the, the wine, which represents his blood. I would encourage you to go back to your seat and, and spend some time alone with the Lord, reflecting. Maybe this is a time for repentance for you. Maybe this is a time just asking the question, okay, how do I need to trust in your sovereign grace more today? And I would encourage you during this time also to, to give generously. This is for our regular attenders, for, our, for our, uh, our members. If you're a guest with us, don't feel obligated. That's what these boxes are for. This is how we trust God. This is how we worship God. Not just with our mouth as we sing, but with our, with our checkbook also. And so if you have questions about salvation, about baptism, about membership. Don't leave here today until you get those questions answered. Uh, again, I'll be in the back. But you come as God is calling you to respond. I'm going to pray, and then you come. Father, once again, we, we thank you for your grace. I pray that your grace would overwhelm us, that we would, we would feel your presence. I, I I pray especially for those who are hurting right now and that life circumstances are just overwhelming. I pray that right now they would feel your sovereign grace, that they would know your unending love, that you loved us before we ever loved you and that because of your good pleasure, we have eternity to look forward with you.
pray for healing. Not just physically, but emotionally. For those who are hurting. I pray for healing in relationships. I pray that you would spur us on to boldness and, and obedience because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.